Hello and welcome to The Lab, 538's NBA podcast. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports, including basketball, for 538, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my two co-podcasters here in the studio, 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. How's it going? Doing okay. Yeah. And on the line from Chicago, Illinois, we've got 538 sports writer Chris Herring. How's it going, Chris? We really had to identify Illinois. Like we couldn't just say Chicago. I can't just stand. Well, on you know, I wanted to. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to confuse it with all those other Chicagos out there. <laughs> this is our first episode for for those who are kind of joining up now, or maybe even those who listen to the precursor podcast to this hot takedown. Uh, here's just a little bit about what we're doing here. The Lab is a new podcast. It's about the NBA. Uh, we're going to talk about how players, teams, and the league as a whole can go into the lab and improve. We'll be coming to you every week, and on today's show, we're going to do a season preview, but we're going to split it up and just talk about the Western Conference this week, and then next week, we'll talk about the Eastern Conference. But before we get to all that, let's explain how we ended up here on this podcast in the first place. Chris, why don't you start? Tell us a little bit about your NBA bona fides. I don't have any, actually. <laughs> um, but no, I, I I travel around. I, I make trips to to pretty much every NBA city. I even go to Seattle from time to time, just on the off chance that maybe they'll be playing basketball out there. I covered the Knicks for five years and spent time in that misery. And I, I just try to write fun stories, obviously, like all of us do, around the idea of numbers, but trying to take the, the actual application of what's happening on the court and showing stuff on film, interviewing the players to kind of get their insight on what they're seeing and why they're doing what they're doing and how stuff fits on the court. And so that's really fun for me. I'll probably have separate interviews every now and then with some of these people from time to time while I'm on the road. But this is a blast, and I'm hoping that the podcast is for the, the listeners as well. Cool. And how about you, Kyle? Hey, so I started as a writer at Deadspin. I ran the, the analytics blog over there about all sports, but, you know, it was really focused on the NBA whenever we could make it. And uh, I just try to focus on kind of the, the fun things that, like, stats can tell you and also the, the things that are more interesting to fans because there tends to be a split with, uh, with analytics of, you know, what's really interesting to a GM or a team or whereas, like, what's useful to you watching the game. So one of my favorite stats is always, like, the Bismack Biombo stat. Oh, yes. It, which is who doesn't get past the ball, which you can do with, you know, the modern things. That's really not too useful for, for a GM probably, but, like, that kind of thing and really focusing on also like the limitations of stats because there tends to be like often an overreach for like kind of an imperfect capturing of like what we're looking at. So like, uh, yeah, but you have to understand the stats to kind of like poke holes in them. Cool. And uh, I used to work for the Atlanta Hawks as an analytics consultant, one of the people that Kyle likes to poke holes in. And yeah, before that, you know, I was heavily into the APBR metrics. I worked for Basketball Reference and blogged there for a number of years. So it's kind of a little bit about us. APBR being like the infamous message board where all the NBA nerds came out of. Yeah, like a number of, I think, future GMs or at least front office people were like lurkers or posters back in the day. John Hollinger, Dean Oliver, the, those kind of folks. So <laughs> let's let's kick up the show, actually, and, and start talking about some, some uh, NBA for the 2018 season. First of all, at the top of every show, we're going to just talk about like a news item and one that really stood out to me since there's no you know, meaningful basketball being played as we're recording this. But last week, the NBA's Board of Governors passed a number of rule changes, uh, reforms to the league. And, and the one that got a lot of attention was the draft lottery reform, which will start in 2019 in the draft that year. And it really, the upshot of it is that the teams with the worst records in the league will lose their big advantage in the ping pong balls. In the past, the team that had the worst record had a 25% chance of getting the number one overall pick. Now that number has gone down to 14%, and it's the same percentage chance for both the number one and the number two and also the number three worst team in the league each year. And at the same time, you saw teams lower in the lottery getting a lot more odds of, of getting high picks and, and doing better in the lottery. So the first question that's on everyone's mind after this is, did this fix tanking? So I'm not sure it fixed it at the very top end. If you're just really bad, you really want to get one of those uh, you know, top picks, the premium picks. 
you're still incentivized to you know maximize your chances because what, it's slightly it's still even though it's not as much of a difference between being the worst team and being just another lottery team there's still a difference right and you still get locked into one of those premium picks which is like why you wanted to be the worst team you were guaranteed a top four pick and you know the in the in the lottery like the value just drops really quickly after that but what this did do was it fixed um, what NBA people like to call the treadmill, which is like you are a pretty bad team or a pretty good team and you can't get any better. And it's like hard to get much worse than that and, unless you just like go full on tanking. And what this did was like it made like the 10th worst team went from their odds of getting a top five pick from 4 percent to 14 percent. That's more than like three times. But then, like, the ninth worst team, 6% to 20%. Eighth worst team, 10% to 26%. So these teams that are not that bad now have a chance at getting a very good pick, and it's a pretty good chance, too. Chris, what do you think? I didn't think it changed nearly enough at this point because you've had so many issues with this with this tanking. It's been the, the sole conversation we've been having about the Sixers, and now I think most people look at the Sixers and say, they're on the cusp of actually doing something here. This is what you would want to do this for. And a team like that would still be incentivized. Think about it. The Sixers never really won the lottery until the Ben Simmons draft. And so they waited around and kept waiting around. What would change about that now? They didn't win any of those lotteries until then. You still could go three or four years without winning it here. You'd still basically have right around the same odds. Like Kyle said, unless you're going in solely to tank, Maybe it changes a little bit there, but you if you're kind of a middle-of-the-pack team, you actually might have even more incentive to tank now because you're like, well, we're going to have an equal chance to everybody else if we finish in top bottom three, bottom four. And so I actually don't think it did nearly enough. They could have gone way further with this. And actually, it feels a lot like a lot of these rules. Tampering is kind of the same thing. They don't go far enough with this stuff. They kind of tow the line with it, and they don't push as far as they could. So, Chris, that's like on the one side, like there's there's not enough of a stick on the on the the very bottom of saying like, okay, so you're not getting rewarded as much at the very bottom. But it seems to me that they're like the the incentive for giving teams that aren't quite that bad, like just marginally improving, because like traditionally there's never been a reward for going from, you know, 20 wins to, to 30 wins like you're like all that does is get you out of like the very top of the draft. And like, that's not what you really want to do. It seems to me like that's what's happened here, where like you're being rewarded, or, or at least like the the sting is being taken away from not being one of the worst teams, but just being you know regular bad now. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Doesn't this seem like it sort of wants to target teams that are aiming to be, you know, maybe the best team that didn't make the playoffs or closer to that end of the spectrum, and then you might luck into a high pick, and then that team, when when that happens, is almost like ready made to contend or maybe maybe a couple moves away from contending all of a sudden. Uh, and maybe that's not a bad thing for the league to try to foster those type of teams into existence instead of the Sixer-type teams, uh, even even if you know it doesn't completely get rid of those types of teams. Anything to kind of move away from multi-year tanking, like you mentioned, Chris, and also just outright bad teams that need more than just one you know good lottery ball bounce in order to even start to become relevant. Yeah, we saw that. There are a couple of teams we've seen that with. We obviously saw Derrick Rose, and, and the Bulls weren't horrible when they got him. They had a really low chance of being able to win that pick, I think. Yao Ming's draft, I think, was like that as well. And so it is always kind of cool when you see that. Orlando won two, was it two of three or two drafts in a row that they, they won the lottery? And so when you do have a team that is kind of on the cusp, it's fun. So there is that element of it. The more and more I read around, though, and I, I see opinions on this, as radical as it sounds, the idea of getting rid of the draft entirely, it, it won't happen. It's just like everything else that we see. It's just like the idea of shortening the season. It'll probably never happen, even though it's probably the best thing for the league. But, man, like if you did that, I think there's actually some merit to the idea of just cutting the draft entirely if we're only going to change it and tinker with it around the margins. 
Okay, so let's leave it there and pivot to today's main topic of conversation, which is our preview of the Western Conference for the 2017-18 NBA season. So here's how we're going to do this. We broadly group the teams into tiers, and by we I mean I, so there might be some disagreement about the, the placement in the tiers, but I think there was some general agreement when we kind of gathered in Slack before uh, taping. And just roughly uh, based on you know Vegas lines and some of the stat systems that I've seen the projections on how good we think each team will be. And and then we're going to run down from best to worst uh, and obviously spend more time talking about the more relevant teams. But there are some interesting, fun players on the, on the lower tier of teams as we get to them. So let's just start out with the top tier. And obviously, the class of the West, again, it seems like will be the Golden State Warriors. Uh, they didn't really suffer any major you know, losses or even that many major changes over the offseason. They got Nick Young. Uh, maybe the most compelling part of their summer was Kevin Durant's various Twitter misadventures. So my first question for you guys is, is this going to be any different in terms of the quality of the Warriors from the past, you know, not just last year, but previous years? Are, they're going to be super dominant again, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the <laughs> easiest answer- question of the entire show. Yes. The obvious answer is yes. And like the only thing that like there's any like real disagreement on is like, is their projection right? Which is they're they're projected at about 63 and a half wins by RPM. And that's how you really know that a team has sort of transcended any kind of preseason, you know, talk or speculation is when we're talking about, you know, I feel like they could be a 68 win team. But uh, if they are, are a 63 win team in Vegas, I'm definitely taking the over like those conversations. I mean, you know, when you're in that range, does it even matter? It's, you know, they're going to be amazing either way. Right. And like there have only been like 13 seasons in the NBA history with 67 wins. So, I mean, we're talking about a very small number of of teams that like we're saying that's their their over under. Now, if we're talking about, you know, other dynastic teams like the Warriors uh, that we've seen in NBA history, and the NBA has a lot of dynasties. In fact, almost all champions have been out of sort of a dynastic run, more so than kind of one-off fluke championships like you see in other sports. What does history say about what ends up derailing these types of dynasties in the end? Is it just, you know, an injury like you mentioned, Chris? Is it... uh, players departing due to free agency or retirement like these things tend to last a long time and the Warriors are maybe relatively early or at least in the middle phase of of the the NBA sort of norm for how long dynasties tend to last right they they kind of resemble more like the 80s teams where like they were mostly homegrown stars and like maybe one or two additions than they do like the more recent dynasties where like Bird, McHale, like Parrish was a trade I think and then like they just last forever. And like so you look at injuries, like they have a little bit of injury history with Kevin Durant's foot and like Steph Curry's ankles, but aside from that, they've been pretty lucky with injuries. And then you they are pretty much set on contracts. They're pretty much set on age. They're a very young team for, you know, a team that's this successful. And so like the things that usually break up teams in the modern era, like aren't really problems for them. The the only thing I see coming up is, is kind of like Kyle said, they've got a little while before they really have to worry about anything unless an injury comes up. I do think the contract situation is interesting. You see people like Bobby Marks tweet out what it would cost to keep this team together long term. And you start getting into the $400 million range in terms of what it would cost per year to keep this team on the court. And so when Clay's contract comes up, and I think that's still two years from now, two more championships they could win between now and then, it becomes a question then. And I think that actually is the most likely thing that breaks this team up is the idea of it just being too expensive. And owners, you know, they they have way more money than we do. But I think at a certain point, they would prefer to have more money rather than less. And Zach Lowe had the piece recently on how much each of these teams were making. The Warriors were not at the very top of the list in terms of what they made. It would be much easier to cut back and save some money and say, well, how good are we really? Can we be a little bit skinnier here and still win this championship? And I think if they win two more, I think they do probably try to test those waters and save some money. Yeah. Now, who, whoever wants to be the owner or the GM that breaks up this sort of all-time team, that that legacy isn't isn't going to look uh, very good uh, historically. But yeah, exactly, Chris. Um, that might be the only way that we see a team like this slow down. So, I think 
the rest of our Warriors talk uh, on the show is going to be maybe about other teams in relation to them. And you already got into that a little bit, Chris. And and so I think I'll move on and talk about the Houston Rockets now. They uh, had a really eventful offseason. Well, before OKC, they may have had, uh, and, and Cleveland's drama, they may have had the most eventful offseason. They added Chris Paul to a team that already had James Harden. Uh, and so now we're going to get to see two of the most ball dominant point guard types in the game try to play together uh, and and just wondering how that works what do, what do you guys think about that who has to change their style of play the most who's going to move off the ball have we seen them try this before in any of their other configurations recently and will it work I think in this situation it's probably going to have to be James Harden that changes his game a little bit more Chris Paul can play off the ball to some extent. I don't think he loves doing it. You can tell how much he likes to be in control. You see all the situations with him and DeAndre Jordan and him shouting. But James Harden has played shooting guard before. And I think he you've seen his numbers come down from three-point range the last couple of years a little bit. He can play off the ball. He can cut a little bit without the ball. He played in a situation where he was with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. So he has experience doing that. I think he's better as the point guard. I think he liked his numbers being where they were last year. But at the same time, if that was a situation he really didn't want, uh, they obviously would have talked that out beforehand. So he seems like he's embracing this. It's a little bit different than Jeremy Lin being his teammate. It's Chris Paul. Uh, But I think that James Harden probably is going to have to go back to being more of a two guard, at at least to let Chris Paul settle in and take – the reins for a little bit to make him feel comfortable until he knows his teammates a little bit better. So on the note of Harden's like three-point numbers coming down over the last couple of years, it's also because he's taking like six, seven pull-up threes a game. Yeah, off the dribble. Yeah, so I mean these aren't like easy shots that he's been taking. Like they stretch the floor just the same. He hits enough of them to keep the defense honest. But like still, like these are hard shots he's been taking that he doesn't have to take anymore if he's got, you know, Chris Paul there and, you know, playing in the Mike D'Antoni system, he can be like Super Joe Johnson uh, basically where – He's playing off the ball. He can, you know, catch and go to the rim or you know, just shoot off the off the catch. Yeah, you mentioned uh, D'Antoni and his system. That's, I think, another one of the interesting things that maybe hasn't gotten as much of attention compared with just the idea of two point guards playing together and, and after being used to holding the ball so much is this idea of the pace at which D'Antoni teams play at because he loves to just run it up and down the floor, and that's never been something that Chris Paul has done. His uh, I looked at this when he was with the Clippers. They ranked 14th in the league in pace, which is possessions per 48 minutes. And when he was with the Hornets, that team ranked 28th in the league in pace. So he's never been really a run-and-gun type of point guard. And like you mentioned, Chris, really been more of a walk-it-up kind of control freak point guard in the half court. Excellent at it. Amazing. One of the best of all time. But I do wonder how that is going to work when when D'Antoni rolls out the ball and, and they have to play a faster pace. Or do they play a faster pace? I wonder a little bit if they if they actually play different styles depending on whether those two are staggered or not. I think that's also a really good way to let these guys feel like they have some ownership of the team as opposed to having to play off each other, as opposed to having to stand in a corner, as opposed to having to play off the ball. Chris Paul is going to have plenty of time out there. We saw James Harden just totally break down and kind of crash and burn in that game, what was it, game six against the Spurs. And so I think if they're resting these guys properly and not burning them out entirely, Chris Paul will get opportunities to walk the ball up. James Harden, if he wants to play at the faster pace they've been playing at the last couple of years, they can play at different styles, and I think there's probably enough room for both of them to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question with them, uh, which I'll ask about all of these Western Conference contenders, is did they move closer to the Warriors or further away from the Warriors in the offseason? It had to be closer, right? How much closer, though? It's definitely closer. Chris Paul helps you. I was mad at Chris Paul that he didn't go to the Spurs because I felt like he would have actually brought them close to even with the Warriors. But, I mean, this is not a bad choice to go to Houston. I'm not totally sure how the fit works. Kyle's convinced it works well. I think we have to wait and see if it's a perfect fit or a perfect marriage. But Houston wasn't really going to go too much farther than where they went last year without a big acquisition like that. This is what they strive for to get these stars in the door. And so it was definitely a good move for them. I actually think they had a couple other good additions during the offseason as well. So this is the messed up thing about like the Warriors era of NBA. Like I am pretty sure that the, uh, the, the fit is going to work. They'll figure it out. But 
how it moves them in relation to the Warriors is kind of a different thing because Bev was a big part of that. Like Patrick Beverly, who they lost in the trade for Chris Paul, uh, was a guy who's just like can get in your jock. He can check the guys on the uh, perimeter that Golden State's throwing at you. And Chris Paul's a very good defender. Yeah, we should say he's a good defensive player. No, he's a very good defender, but like not quite the aggressive like kind of pit bull style that you know you would put on Steph Curry or you know Clay Thompson or uh, not for nothing Russell Westbrook, who we'll get to in a second. Mm-hmm. Okay, so great segue, Kyle. I'm going to move on and talk about the Thunder now. Who uh, we just got done talking about a team that seemed like they would have the most ridiculous collection of just usage rate on one team between CP3 and James Harden, but the Thunder found a way to outdo the Rockets in this department and now they have not only Russell Westbrook Kyle's favorite player we should note that we'll note that often during the season but also Paul George and now Carmelo Anthony on the same team it's the most ridiculous collection of high usage stars I think in NBA history by far on on one team I mean maybe the heat from a couple years ago is the only thing that that comes to mind as rivaling that what is that going to look like so obviously they're going to have to take on different roles but one reason that they're, you know, the collection of like the highest usage players ever put together is because they've been on very bad yes. teams and where they've had roles that have been like outsized compared to like really what they should be on a good team. So I think that's a little overstated. But at the same time, yeah, there's going to be a lot of adjustment. Like Melo's going to have to be, you know, super Ryan Anderson or <laughs> like however <laughs> you're going to have him. And, uh, you know, Paul George is going to have to go back to kind of the role that he was playing on those teams when Indiana was playing well. But but no, I think I think it can work. Yeah, I'm looking forward to off the ball spot up shooting Carmelo Anthony. I'm, I'm kind of loving. I have to just go back to Kyle for a second. The the super Ryan Anderson and super Joe Johnson, and these are like two of the more boring characters <laughs> in the league. And so I'm just trying to picture them as superheroes. But no, for sure, th- this is a team that I think becomes really interesting because yes, you look at the usage with these guys, and it looks crazy off the charts. I was just researching a story I'm doing on the Timberwolves. And looking at their usage, and they're both just above, all three of those guys are just above 25, 26%. And then you've got Westbrook at 41%, Mello at 29%, and Paul George close to 30%. And so you've got these crazy numbers with them, but it actually seems to fit pretty well with this team. These other guys really aren't great shooters anyway. They're not guys that really want to get in the way anyway. And so they're probably going to catch opponents off guard when they do shoot. And they're going to get better shots as a result of how spaced out this offense can be now with actual shooting, like Kyle's written about before. They had no shooters on this team before. So it's a really good fit, I think, to have Melo there. And I think Paul George will fit in well as as well. Yeah, like you talked about the just off-the-charts usage rate of Westbrook was the flip side of that by definition is that the rest of that team had very little usage. And when you slot in guys like George and Anthony next to a bunch of non-high usage players, it doesn't really disrupt their game that much. It actually makes it a lot easier for guys like Robertson and Adams who are efficient players, good players in really constrained roles. Uh, Now they don't have to even try to do anything beyond that they've got other guys that can shoot well we're gonna have to see how that works so i actually agree with that i think that robertson is going to you know come in and like be a much more efficient player than he was last year but uh we're gonna have to see that in practice Mm -hmm. so like there's this play that's going around on twitter of like paul george on the left wing swings the ball over to to andre roberts for a wide open three and like everyone knows what's about to happen like robertson shot 24 percent from three last year Chris Paul doesn't even bother closing out. He just waves him off. He looks disgusted <laughs> that Andre's taking the shot. How dare you take and, that uh, shot? No, and like, as he's airballing the shot, like Chris Paul just shouts, like, hell nah, <laughs> and like, collects the rebound, and they go back the other way. Like Paul George like, does a double take on it. And so if teams just play the Tony Allen defense against him all year, we're going to have to see how that works. Um, but, but as long as they can you know, come up with an answer for that, yeah, yeah it should work. Cool. Uh, The other question on there is, I think, still related to the fact that Westbrook was kind of a man on an island last year, is the depth of the team beyond, even after adding these superstars, it doesn't seem like they're really well stocked in the second unit with, you know, a lot of good players or people that could play like specific roles when some of these guys, maybe they stagger them and maybe that's the answer. But this team doesn't seem especially deep compared to some of the other West top teams. Are they uh, closer to the Warriors than the Rockets? Or how, how would you kind of rank the, those two teams in relation to each other? I actually think Oklahoma City has a better chance than the Rockets do. 
Maybe that's just that Chris Paul is cursed. Maybe it's that I value defense a little bit more. I think Houston improved on the defensive end. Oklahoma City was already a really, really good defensive team. That was pretty much the only thing aside from Westbrook that saved them last year in a lot of situations was that they could lock down. They went and they got Paul George. And now they got Melo, and hell no, he's not a good defender. But when you put him in the right spot and you actually put him at the four instead of chasing around these threes that are going to be at the perimeter all day long, he can be a useful defender. He's not really intimidated by guys that are bigger because he's a pretty big guy himself. And the biggest thing that they didn't have last year was shooting. And now they've filled that gap with two guys that can shoot. One guy that's probably going to get a ton of open shots as a result of how they're going to have to defend this team. I tend to really like them. I think that they're a little bit short in terms of the rotation. Houston is going to be that way at times, too, especially if someone goes down. I like Oklahoma City more. Okay, yeah. And Kyle uh, had written a story called, uh, I think, Carmelo makes OKC whole, which goes to what you were saying, Chris, too, that now they seem like more of a complete team. Yeah, so like going back to the template of like the way that they were playing back when Kevin Durant was still around and they still had Serge Ibaka and like kind of they can play the same system. But uh, the other reason I think that it, they're a little closer to the Warriors, like not super close, I think, but is the way that the, the Cavs played the Warriors last year in the finals where Kyrie and LeBron just kind of went at them and played a bunch of iso ball, played a bunch of, you know, you know high pick and roll for, for LeBron where he would, you know, go in and, you know, just do it on his own, crash to the rim, uh, pass out. And they were kind of like playing on their own and like just two guys going and getting buckets. And then Kevin Love would try to, you know, post up Kevin Durant, I think in like one of the more pivotal plays of the series and just got blocked. And Kevin Durant went the other way for, for an easy layup. And then like when they came back to Kevin Love, he just would pass out and like they didn't have that third guy who could go do it but the thunder have the third guy now. The thunder now have a third mm-hmm. guy who can go do it so in the scenario where you have three guys who can just you can't match the warriors you know playing perfect team basketball but you can just have three guys go get buckets mm-hmm. they kind of have that if like that's going to be the template that you're going to go with okay uh, let's move on to the fourth team in my top tier, the last team in there. And Kyle, you had mentioned before uh, we taped that you might fight me on this one, but I'm going to put the San Antonio Spurs in there. Uh, last year, they felt like the Warriors' number one challenger when healthy, which didn't really play out in the playoffs uh, all that well for them in the end. But they also seem kind of like a forgotten team with all the crazy moves happening with OKC and Houston over the off season. So. Kyle, uh, I'm going to start with you. You don't think the Spurs should be in the top tier anymore? I think we got to question it. So obviously, yes, they've won 50 games forever as long as like you know some people have been alive. 18 straight years. 18 straight years. So including the lockout year. Yes, which is just <laughs> which was mind blowing, filthy. But they had like not the best off season. They lost Jonathan Simmons and Dwayne Dedman, who like Chris knows are two of my favorite players on the Spurs from last year because they did like the little things that you know the Spurs do. They, they went out and got Rudy Gay, who's coming off an Achilles injury, which is like not a great injury to be coming off of. Parker's out to start the year. Manu and Paul are even older. LaMarcus Aldridge, by all accounts, is just super unhappy and pissy. And their big offseason move was re-signing Patty Mills, which they, they got their backup point guard now. Now um, their starter. Now, now their starter. And so, like, Murray's going to be good. Like, he's, uh, he's 21. He's going to get better. And they have a bunch of guys who you've never heard of on the roster, which for the Spurs is a good sign because they're probably <laughs> going to turn into into good rotation players. But and Manu like, is back, and Manu's back for another year for whatever that's worth. But like this is a team that like you look at it like it doesn't make sense. And eventually, like these teams that don't make sense are have to stop like winning fifty games every year. No, I, I totally agree. I'm not sure if it's this year or next year, but it's coming, and it's going to be sad to some extent because. I love watching this team. I love counting them out and seeing them win anyway, so maybe this will be one of those years. This is just a team, though, that I, you know, I've been watching the kind of guys that they sign, and on paper, they're not our favorite players as guys that really value analytics. LaMarcus Aldridge, for years, Rudy Gay was kind of not an analytical favorite, and now he's coming off the Achilles injury. They, they let go of valuable players that actually walked for not even that much money in some cases. And they've loaded up on guys like Powell, who is really not an ideal rim protector. And now you put Patty Mills, who I think statistically for years has been the fastest player in the league in terms of how hard he's running on the up and down the court. 
20 minutes a game, stretching that to 30 minutes all of a sudden as a starter, that's a really big difference. And this is a team that for years now has been making use of been making use of Tony Parker going to the basket. Patty Mills is not that guy. And so I just wonder how much strain does that put on Kawhi now that he's reached superstardom? Is it kind of too tough a hill for him to continue climbing? Now, is there anything to be said for the fact that Pop just seems to be able to adapt this team to win under any roster circumstance, any kind of adversity? He just seems to be able to find a new style of play with his roster that works. Is, is Should we give that any benefit of the doubt? I think it's not just the roster that like he finds a way to do, but like individual players, yeah. he gets them to do things that they haven't done before in their careers. So Rudy Gay coming in as like he's on the record as like hating analytics and like thinks they're they're garbage. He's now working with, you know, our old colleague, Kirk Goldsberry down in San Antonio. <laughs> um, but like they get players to do things that they haven't uh, been known for. So LaMarcus Aldridge, like while he wasn't a lockdown defender last year, he became a pretty good interior defender, uh, better than he was in Portland, at least. And, like he had a 44 percent uh, defensive field goal percentage when he was like, guarding shots at the rim, which is very good. Uh, it's not quite like Rudy Gobert, but it's it's close. And uh, Pau Gasol, who has never shot a three in his life, or like not too many, was a 50% free, uh, three-point shooter last year. So, I mean, yes, there's some, obviously something to be said for Pop putting players in situations that like bring out talents that like we didn't know they had. But at what point does it run out? Just like Kyle said, I, I just don't, I don't trust it, the age of these guys and the fact that they they have tweaked so much and now they've actually gone to a model where a lot of the, the best teams in the league have were almost, to some extent, This is I think this could actually end up being a Westbrook-style team. The system is not built that way, but it's built around one player, and the guys that were there when he got there are no longer there anymore. You don't have Duncan there. Parker's out. Patty Mills is now a starting point guard on this team. I, I think Kawhi could end up seeing really high usage this year. He's confident he's coming into his own, but he doesn't have the same sort of support at least he's not going to once these guys fully age out. LaMarcus Aldridge, I don't know what to expect from the guy. I thought he would have been gone by now, but I don't think there's a trade demand for him right now. Yeah, it does It does seem like they now have a one-star system uh, or roster in a conference where the best teams have two, if not three now, or in the case of the Warriors, four uh, stars just up and down the roster. It does seem like they moved in the, in the wrong direction this offseason. Okay, so that'll do it for our talk about the top tier. Before we move on to the middle tier, uh, and Kyle, you can tell me which of those teams will bump up into the top tier when we get to them. Uh, Let's pause to hear a word from our sponsor. Any coach can tell you about the importance of great talent for a successful team. And the same goes in the business world. That's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown in honor of our former show, Hot Takedown. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. All right, so let's talk about the middle tier of the Western Conference now. And I'm going to start with a team that I think is the most interesting just because they've been so confounding to the stat heads, to just every observer, I feel like, for the past couple of years, and that's the Minnesota Timberwolves, who we were fooled by last year. We projected that they would win 46 games going into the season. They only won 31 games. And once again, uh, not only our system, but other statistical systems and the Vegas over-unders even think that they're going to win somewhere between 45 and 50 games, which would be a quantum leap for this team. Are either of you guys buying this for this T-Wolves team? I think they might make the playoffs in the back end. They're still a really, really young team. And when it comes down to it, 
their defense isn't going to improve enough to where they can even come close, I think, to jumping in the top tier. But I think their offense, even though it was a top 10 unit last year, probably will be this year, I think it's still going to be a problem because this is a team that all of a sudden Ricky Rubio would have been a really great fit with this team, I think. They just have so many guys that can score and so many guys that want to score from Jeff Teague that they just got, Jimmy Butler that they just added. One of the first guys off their bench now is all of a sudden Jamal Crawford. Jamal Crawford led the league in isolation rate. And so I I just think they have so many guys that are looking for their own shot to where this is a team that doesn't have a facilitator that they need to kind of keep everybody on this roster happy, especially young guys that are kind of growing and need more to eat. So I don't I don't see them as being a team that really is going to join the top tier, and I'm not even sure they're quite middle tier. So I just so to start off, I agree with everything that Chris just said. Um, but to kind of play devil's advocate or uh, the Nate Silver advocate, which is, <laughs> uh, so so Nate is working on a, a projection system that I'm sure we'll talk about in the next few weeks. Probably uh, in excruciating detail. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, we, we've been talking a lot about it behind the scenes, but uh, that system uh, doesn't like Rubio so far. And like he hasn't put all the bells and whistles on it. So some of the things that Rubio is good at, they you know, might come in and you know affect that later. But part of it is because Rubio like dribbles the air out of the ball. And what um, he's found is that you know the later you go into the shot clock, uh, the less valuable like a possession is. So Rubio can't just pick up his dribble and you know shoot a you know thirty three percent pull up jumper. Uh, because he shoots that at like what twenty percent, which is much much worse, and so Rubio like has an an inherently like negative value on a team like this. Whereas Teague, even though he's you know not facilitating the way that Rubio would, is a good outside shooter, and he can create space for Wiggins, he can create space for Butler to go to the hole in a way that Rubio couldn't. So there is some value there to to getting a guy who can you know actually shoot the basketball. Mm-hmm. And to the idea of them being young, they do seem to have moved a little bit more toward like the maturation of a roster that has a bunch of young guys, gets rid of a few of them, Levine is gone, uh, and, and moves toward getting veterans, almost like you would see a team build toward becoming you know a championship contending team uh, in, in a couple of years, swap out some of the pieces that aren't working, keep the ones that are and then move on with that especially now that they have Jimmy Butler who I think is pretty one of the more underrated stars in the league I think people still don't give him enough credit for how good he's been uh, over the past couple of years and then Towns you know improving our friend Andrew Wiggins one of the uh, better offensive wings at least just you know putting aside his his bad defense so it does seem like with a few key developments from some of the younger guys that they hung on to that they could make that move. I'm trying to sell the analytic projection here, if you can't tell. <laughs> trying to come up with a plausible way in which they hit that that 45 to 50 win mark. One thing I think they could do to get there, um, I, I was out at their media day in Minneapolis uh, a couple weeks ago, and one thing that they brought up that I guess I really hadn't thought about, Carl Anthony Towns was asked, how do you guys make this fit? How do you guys make this stuff gel quicker? And he said, everybody knows the system. You bring in Jimmy Butler, you bring in Tosh Gibson. Normally, when you bring in players of that caliber, they have to learn. They knew this system before we did because this is the same coach that they had in Chicago. And so maybe that does help a little bit. Maybe there are some elements where they get help. They were a team that blew 22 double-digit leads last year. And so if you give them half of those, all of a sudden they might be a playoff team with that. And now they've got a player that was very, very good at closing, that did very well in clutch situations. Maybe he becomes their closer. So they're, they're, there's a plausible way in which it happens. I just don't know that I see it in year one. I think a year or two from now, maybe they're better positioned once these guys mature a little bit more. Okay, so let's talk about the Denver Nuggets, uh, which is another team that I think is kind of fascinating. They're uh, they're one of the more talked about sort of like hipster teams. I feel like people are are bringing up uh, going into the season, uh, and they picked up Paul Millsap over the off season uh, to add to a team that was really good offensively. Seemed to have some problems on defense. Uh, what do you guys think about that team? Have they improved uh, significantly? So maybe even to the point where they might hop out of this tier, or are they kind of squarely in the middle tier? I think they've improved for sure. I mean, the the interesting thing about this summer, I think Paul Millsap was actually one of the most interesting free agents in the class because it was mostly a question of who's going to pay this guy that's on the back end of his career. He's still a very productive player. He's a very balanced player in the sense that he's not going to hurt you on either side of the ball. He's seemingly a good role model. 
speaks well to the media. And Denver was interestingly positioned here because they, they do want to win. They're probably not going to win at a really high level. They lost some talent. They obviously lost Gallinari, who wasn't healthy for most of the time there anyway. But they have young players that they want to see make the next step. Jokic is one of them. Gary Harris is a player that is really interesting, too. A very good defensive player who's coming around on his shot, is able to contribute more on offense, cuts off the ball. This is a team that I like. They, they still need some point guard help. Who knows if Murray will, will be ready in the next year or two. But they really have a couple holes, but they're, they're moving in the right direction. I like getting Millsap for their development at this point. So, like, Harris is a good development, but they really need something out of Murray because they can't miss on two straight draft picks like that where they have Murray and then Emmanuel Moutier, who um, has just been not really very good. He's a work in progress. Yeah. Murray, like, has a little, seems to be a little more on track than, uh, than Moutier, but, like, even last year... He had an 11 PER, a 51 true shooting percentage. Like these are things that improve with rookie point guards, especially. But that's starting from a pretty low level and, to to claw back up. And that's to say nothing of the defensive side, which neither of those stats really even speak to. And he was not good uh, at that end of the floor either. But I'm I'm intrigued by Jokic, uh, who also you know we, when we talked about under the radar superstar type numbers, at least from from a statistical point of view. Uh, he he is in a class by himself. I think uh, among like the the best young sort of underrated star level producers, right? Right, and it's not even like boring. Like, oh, we're just going to put up like these very efficient numbers. Like he is flinging the ball around like half court, <laughs> half court alley oops. Just great like, passer. Like, yeah, amazing passer. Just amazing. Like just amazing shots. Like he just tries a bunch of like very fun plays. Like once they finally get good, like I think he's going to be like a very very popular player. Next up. Among the teams we're going to talk about are the L.A. Clippers. Feels a little weird to put them in uh, anywhere near sort of contention or talk about them as a playoff team after they had a, another crushing playoff disappointment last year and then lost Chris Paul. They seem like they are a franchise that is in smoking ruin. And yet at the same time, if you look at the the Vegas uh, over-unders and also even the statistical projections, it thinks... Oh, they're going to be like okay. They're not going to be great. They're not going to be as good as they were with Chris Paul. But somehow that it, it projects that they will survive with Blake Griffin as their best player and DeAndre Jordan as their number two. What do you guys think about this team? It, it, do you agree with me that it feels just weird to kind of say that they're still uh, pretty good even after after all of the off season uh, things that had they had happen to them? It feels a little weird, but I mean the big question is. Like which Blake Griffin is like gonna turn up because or will any Blake Griffin turn up? Yeah, I mean like he's played sixty-seven, thirty some games and like another sixty some games last year. So yeah, he has to play games also. But like there was a there was a brief stretch from like about third twenty thirty games three years ago where he looked like a kind of poor man's LeBron. Where he was just going to the rim with you know tucking the ball like LeBron does and just going hard. He could pass out like he's a very underrated passer. And you're like, okay, so if Chris wasn't here, like, this could be the Blake show. This could work. And so they've added Gallinari, who is actually a really good analytical player, where he draws fouls like crazy on those drives to the rim. He gets hurt on those drives to the rim a lot, which is why he's not on the floor all that much. Um, he's never turned into, you know, the greatest shooter ever seen, as, uh, as Mike D'Antoni called him once. But, like, Gallinari's a good player to add for them, and they've got, you know, Serbian Magic Johnson. I'm calling everyone Magic Johnson, but, like, uh, Milo's— Better Te than Super Joe Johnson. Mio's Teodosic um, is looking—like, I'm a big fan already. Like, if, if you've seen any of the clips on, on Reddit, on, on Twitter, whatever, like, he's throwing, like, just disgusting, like, 70-foot underhanded one-hand, like, lead passes. Um, they're going to be a lot of fun, at least, and Beverly gives them something that, like— they didn't lose everything like when they lost Chris Paul and JJ. Exactly. Right? That's what I was going to say. Beverly is a sneaky pickup here. We talked about it before with Houston where that sort of move, obviously getting Chris Paul, but you lose something by losing Pat Beverly. Nobody likes to play this guy. Nobody wants to play against this guy. Russell Westbrook still hates him, I think, for obvious reasons. But they have him. I think Gallinari, you know, if you're going to lose Chris Paul – they got back a pretty decent haul for him, considering that Chris Paul had already made up his mind he didn't want to be there anymore. They got back some pretty good stuff, and they, with the space they had left over, did some pretty good things here. I, they're actually going to be pretty entertaining to watch. If they're not really good, they're at least going to be entertaining. 
And I'll be honest, I really enjoy watching Blake Griffin play without Chris Paul. It doesn't make them a better team, but I do kind of feel like Blake Griffin's ability shows through more without having the offense run through Chris Paul all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Chris, uh, on on that. That if you if you're not going to be you know great anymore with the the floor general Chris Paul, maybe you can at least be entertaining with some of the other parts that that you picked up in the trade for him. Okay, so let's move on and talk about the Portland Trailblazers, who are another interesting team. Uh, they were a five seed a couple years ago. They put on a really good run in the after midseason last year to pick up the eighth seed, and then promptly lost uh, in crushing fashion to the Warriors in the first round. Uh, and now they still have sort of a two-man roster. You wrote about this last year, Chris, with uh, Dame Lillard and C.J. McCollum really being like the only two offensive players that they have uh, and everything sort of working around that. It seems like it's going to be more of the same this season, right? Where where does this team go? What's their uh, best-case scenario? Can they get back to that five seed? Is that what they're looking at? I don't think so, unless they're just real bad injuries in, in that conference. One thing that I don't like about this team, or maybe it's just the way they're talked about, they, they had really bad contracts on the books. They got rid of the one with Alan Crabb. Yusuf Nurkic, I, I just I don't think he's quite the difference maker that people think. I think folks really like Dame, and they really like McCollum, and people are just kind of thirsty to see someone kind of take up the mantle for the third star there. I think Nurkic is fine, but people talked about him when he was hurt during the playoffs last year as if he was the difference between making that a competitive series or not. And I, I think they're a lot further away than that. I don't, I don't think that there's any one guy that you could add there. The irony there is that Melo would have been interesting to add to that team. They clearly could use a little bit more offense outside of their top two guys. But even that, I'm just not sure. They, they just seem so far away on defense that I'm not really sure what you could have added to make this a true contender, even though they were, they were in the playoffs last year. No, to me, they're closer to the lottery than they are to, you know, climbing up the ranks of, uh, of the playoffs. And, I mean, uh, Chris mentioned Alan Crabb. Like, so now they have only, like, one of, like, the worst contracts in the league instead of, like, two of the five worst. And uh, so Evan Turner being the other. Like, th- this is a team that, like, just blew all its money when the cap spiked and didn't really seem to have a plan. And now, like, yeah, we're so we're at the stage where, like, the big question for them in the offseason is can Yusef Nurkic, uh, you know, keep up the play – that he showed, like when he was traded over from the Nuggets, and because he really turned it on after the trade, he really turned it on. But like that came out to fifteen and ten, and <laughs> like fifteen and ten, <laughs> turn it. Uh, yeah, there's degrees of turning it on in, in thirty minutes for like a big man is like that's just like a competent big man in the league. Like there are probably like thirty, forty guys in the league who can give you an approximation of that. Like obviously he had much bigger games than that. Like he showed like a little more uh, flash than that. But but no, like on average, like he was a pretty good big man and. Like this, this roster needs a lot more than that if they're going to climb up, like and you know contend with the teams that we've been talking about. So, what would you guys do if you were the Blazers? Would you just try to continue to plug away with Dame and McCollum and just see what you can do down the line, or would you try to trade some of those guys and maybe, like you mentioned, Kyle, you know, moving toward the lottery is something that you should do. Maybe be one of those teams that we talked about at the top of the show that aims for the middle of the lottery and tries to get lucky and and builds from there. I don't know. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, they got lucky to some extent on both like Lillard and McCollum. Neither of them was projected to be quite as good as they are. And so, yeah, like they've shown that they can draft from those positions and, you know, get good players. So that might be the way to go. But, I mean, it's not also it's also maybe not up to them if they, you know, get worse than they already are because they don't have like the most talented roster Mm -hmm. right now. All right, so let's leave it there with the Blazers and talk about the New Orleans Pelicans, who I think we're all really fascinated by uh, after they made the trade to get Boogie Cousins last season. And so we're all still waiting for Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins to come together and make this unstoppable juggernaut. But is that too much of an expectation based on what we've seen of them uh, in, in kind of limited parts of last season when they played together? So this is funny because, like, we get the the counterfactual now to what we're talking about with the Wolves, where we were like, okay, so maybe Rubio was, you know, the oil that we needed to, you know, grease this thing and, you know, make all these disparate pieces work. Now we have Rajon Rondo, who does not (laughs) like to shoot the ball, likes to pass to his big man for assists. and Yeah, almost a a Rubio-esque type of player before Rubio even came along. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And that's not really the kind of style that either of these big dudes like. Uh, Boogie is the like the most unassisted big man like in the league by far. He gets his own. He gets his points on his own much more than most big men. Uh, Anthony Davis, obviously, a guy who can ISO and you know go get his own shot. But if they are incorporating both of them at the same time, then it might make more sense to let Rondo you know pick and choose some of that stuff. So. Maybe, uh, but they have a long way to go from like the results from last year. I tend to like what they're doing. I didn't love the Rondo move at all. Uh, I think that they were just kind of in a tight spot because they had just paid all that money to Drew Holiday. It's a team that's basically capped out anyway. That's why I liked the move to trade for Cousins, but it, it's pretty unclear where do they go from here because you really need those two to work, and if they don't, there is no answer other than to maybe trade him somewhere else before his deal is up. So they're in a tight spot. I tend to like them more than I like the Blazers. I probably would switch those two teams out. I think they have a better chance. And I feel like something will happen because they'll get desperate if they absolutely have to just to try to keep Cousins or to deal him somewhere. Something's going to happen with that team one way or the other. That's why they're so interesting. Okay. So the last team in this middle tier uh, that I slotted in here, who were a five seed in the West last year, actually, are the Utah Jazz. Uh, And I just don't even know what to make of this team. So I'll let you guys be the guide on this. They're really good defensively. It's mostly Gobert, right? And Hayward left uh, over the offseason. What did that do to them? And, and do you guys see them uh, making a return trip to the playoffs? Or is that going to be difficult? So I actually think it'll sound a little bit crazy. I think Gordon Hayward's a little bit overrated. I think that Hill... We'll get to that when we talk about the Celtics, by the way. We will. We will. I think that Hill, if if we knew that Hill would be healthy, which you obviously can't just slot that in and just say it for sure, Hill, I think, is a bigger loss for them than Hayward in some ways. Hayward is younger, and so for the future of the franchise, it's a bigger deal. But I think that having a point guard that can shoot with that lineup opened things up quite a bit. I think that'll be interesting now to see Rubio on an offense where they struggle to score. I think they were last in the league in terms of how long it took them to get their shots off. Uh, Joe Johnson was their closer. Hayward really wasn't that guy. And so this this is kind of just a strange team. They they win their games on their defense. That's why I don't think they'll fall off quite as much as people think they will because their defense is still pretty good. But it's just going to be a real struggle for them to score this season. Yeah, I mean, you go up and down their roster, and I, I guess they can still give the ball to Joe Johnson, but it's going to be Rubio just having to like spoon-feed guys uh, for their shots because – they don't really have anyone who's like going to go out there and like create their own shot, like Rodney Hood, maybe. Like that's seems like the most <laughs> likely option, which is a little bit scary. I guess Favors had a pretty good usage rate in the past, but he's not a guy that you know creates for himself necessarily. With that, he's not really a passer uh, out of the post, right? And this goes back to uh, again to bring up you know uh, Nate's uh, Nate's new system of we've kind of like come full circle on usage rate of yeah, it's hard to create a shot in the NBA and like being a guy who can go out and like create his own shot, you know, get, you know, make his own offense is valuable. And it's very obvious when you come to a team that, like, doesn't have a guy like that, which um, might be the Jazz this year. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's leave it there for the middle tier. Uh, and we're going to move on to the bottom tier. And the first team in this bottom tier that I uh, that I sketched out actually made the playoffs last year. So we'll probably have some fans of this team not super happy with uh, being put in the bottom tier. But that's the Memphis Grizzlies. They not only made the playoffs, they pushed the Spurs to six games in that series. But it does seem like a return trip uh, to the playoffs is going to be difficult for them this year. Uh, their over-under win total in Vegas is 37.5. And a lot of the stat systems have this them as low as 33 wins uh what do you guys think uh, do you think that maybe they're being undersold by these uh do you think that maybe vegas has them right i'm curious as to your thoughts on this i mean that sounds about right to me like the grit and grind era is over they, it is over they got rid of zebo they got rid of zebo got rid of tony allen yeah um and now they're left with like Mike Conley, who they're paying a lot of money for, for like a 33-win projection. A lot of money. And like that's the thing where like if they were going to run this thing out and you know keep Zebo around, keep Tony Allen around, like keep the veterans around as long as they could, that contract makes more sense to me where like they're just not going to fall into the lottery. They're just going to do everything they can to, to play this thing out. Uh, it seems like they're still you know going to make a good effort, but but no, like when they're they're not bringing back like all their veterans like it's it's tough to build around like that kind of contract maybe i'm just sad because i thought that this group would just kind of stay together until literally the wheels 
fell off until someone lost a leg or something. This is a team that that was so much of their identity that it's going to be strange to watch them now. Yes, they've got Gasol. Yes, they've got Conley. But these other guys, it's kind of a ragtag group. And I've heard Chandler Parsons' name so many more times this summer than I ever wanted to. He He's two years removed from the last time we really heard him in a relevant sense. And I, I just don't think that if, if you're talking about him this much and, you know, is he back, is he not back, it, it just strikes me as a really, really bad sign for this team. I don't think he's ever going to be what he was before. He was a really fun player when he's healthy. But the type of surgeries that he's had just don't suggest he's ever going to be back in the same form we saw him before. Okay, so let's talk about the Lakers. Uh, this is the next team, and now we've really delved into teams that were, were not good last year but are trying to kind of emerge from that. And we got to talk about Lonzo Ball. When we were running the numbers on him before the draft, I my preset notion out of UCLA was that he is going to be incredibly overrated, the stats aren't going to like him, uh, and, and he is going to be a likely bust. And then when Stats and Info ran their model and the various other draft models came out, it actually was the total opposite of that he looked like the best prospect statistically in the entire draft and so I'm curious as to what you guys think from studying the tape on him and and seeing him in summer league and so forth he does seem like he kind of has star power written all over him and yet at the same time as a rookie maybe it's a little too much to ask for him to to carry the Lakers into relevance this soon so Chris and I saw him at summer league and he looked really really good um, like obviously he was putting up triple doubles, like the first in you know summer league history, all that stuff. But like to me, the the question was like he was having a hard time getting to the rim, and that's something he's going to have to do in the league, and that's something that's like also hard to to see on like college tape. That's hard to see in the summer league. And we well, should actually, say his scoring in college was not exactly that great in the first place. Right, like he was a very good, uh, like efficient player, but like he also like wasn't like putting up all these uh, all these shots, going to the rim all the time. And, like, for me, the play was, like, he got switched onto Bryce Johnson again in the summer league game against uh, against the Clippers. Bryce Johnson's not the fastest guy. He's a power forward, like, has, you know, trouble you know, defending all kinds of players. <laughs> and Lonzo tried to take him off the bounce, then backed out, tried it again, and did not get there. Could Oof. not get there. And to me, like, that's not the best sign. So if you're trying to poke holes in the Lonzo thing, like, that's it. Like, he's gonna, he's not the fastest guy, but... My my concern is on the defensive end too for the same sort of thing. He just we we've known he's not athletic, but the idea watching him play against NBA level talent that was summer league, and now we're going to watch him play real NBA talent, first and second string guys, and that's that's where I worry a little bit. I don't think it'll have a bearing on whether he can be a good pro, but whether he's a star and whether he can ever sign with someone other than Big Baller Brand. I think that's what we're watching for is to see. Um, his skill set, how does it translate? He's tall, but if he can't get into the paint consistently, how does that affect the sorts of passes he's able to make? What makes this game so special? If he's not able to get around guys, it's going to really take a toll on what all he's able to accomplish as a point guard. And Kyle, you think he might not even be the best rookie on the Lakers. Is that right? No, 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 no. It's not what I'm <laughs> But like, so Kyle Kuzma <laughs> has been tearing up uh, preseason. He had put up 23 uh, the other night like with a couple pull-up threes, a like just a bunch in the second half. And that's promising to me because the Lakers for a long time have been just trying to grow their next star, their next Kobe. And what they haven't been doing is growing, you know, their next role players, like the Rick Foxes or like whoever else that you need to, you know, surround those stars with. And Kuzma, if he can be a reliable outside shooter, he will be the first that they have had in a long time in Los Angeles. So, like, the Lakers fans already really like the guy. And, you know, if he can just turn into, like, a shooter, that's going to be a very big deal for this team that did not have very many of them. Yeah, anytime you're hearkening back to the Rick Fox era, you know that it's been a long time. Uh, So let's talk about the Suns for a split second. And this team is a really fun team, young team, a lot of young talent. And yet at the same time, uh, and Chris, you wrote about this last year, they seem to have, like, basketball IQ issues or inexperience based issues at least with uh, a lot of fouls uh, a lot of you know uh, we invented the stat last year actually the block charge percentage uh, to try to measure when a ref has to make that call what percentage of the time does the defender get uh, the charge call and how much of uh, the time is it a block and the Suns were just 
instantly, like, a bunch of them were down at the bottom of that, and that seems to stem from inexperience, but that seems to indicate that maybe this is something that's fixable, and if they get over that hump with all the talent they have, this could be kind of an interesting team. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, it's just not a one-year fix, though, and so it, there's a reason that they're at the bottom of this list. And I, my question, my bigger long-term question for them is, is Earl Watson the guy that gets the chance to see this through? He's been there for a couple of years now, and I, I like the way he talks about them. He talks about them like they're family. They obviously are being very patient with everything. They, they tanked at the end of last season and just were sitting guys like Tyson Chandler out and Bledsoe, Brandon Knight. And so they're, they're clearly committed to developing this next set of guys, but I just don't know to what end. It, it seems like it's going to be a really long process. They have a lot of bigs on that team, and it just kind of seems like they're auditioning in general because they've got so much to figure out. And so they're interesting. They're fun to watch. Sometimes you can see the light bulb coming on, but they're really far ways out from really accomplishing anything. All right, let's talk about the Dallas Mavericks. They're the second last team on this list. And if you're uh, doing process of elimination, you'll be able to figure out who the last one is before we mention it. But with the Mavs, it seems like it's all about Dirk Nowitzki and when he retires and when this team can kind of move on and, and rebuild. Uh, what do you guys think is is the state of this team in in 2017 slash 18 and is this just sort of a tanking year i mean they've got yogi ferrell as their number one point guard uh on on some of their depth charts that i'm seeing online uh what's what's going on with this team and what's going on with nerland's noel also uh who seems to be hung out to dry uh on this roster nerland's noel i feel like i want to hook him up with my agent because what happened there with that deal but yeah it's just a, a weird situation I, th- I think was it cuban or was it um rick carlisle that came out and said definitively that i'm not sure he's going to be our starting center which wow you basically went from a 70 million dollar deal almost and turned that down And now you're really going to have to prove yourself because you're not even going to be starting on one of the worst teams in the league. They want to play Dirk at the five. And so how much of an opportunity does that give him to showcase himself before he goes back on the open market? But yeah, this is just a team that has swung and missed so many times. And I almost feel bad for them. Uh, I say almost because I don't. But the DeAndre Jordan situation, and they've constantly gone after the star. And they've come close a couple times. Not that DeAndre would make them a title contender, but they would be better than what they are. And they've just kind of got a bunch of pieces here. Harrison Barnes, they're they're throwing money at people and hoping it works out. Wesley Matthews got a big contract from them too. And so it's not a team that's going anywhere fast. I'm really excited to watch Dennis Smith because he was so much fun at Summer League. But uh, short of them finding gold in him, they've got a long way to go to just figure out something coherent for when Dirk is gone. Yeah, so with the Dirk stuff, I also want to see it like actually happen. Um, him playing at the five because like how many nights is like fossilizing Dirk Nowitzki really going to take a mouthful of a Hassan Whiteside or like a chest full of like DeAndre Jordan I, I don't want to like, see that Rick. at the five I could do without that exactly so he's going to be like Rick like maybe we've proved our point here like we, we, we can go back to you know doing what we do yeah so the last team that we're going to talk about in the west are the Sacramento Kings uh, a team that has been consistently in disarray for the last handful of years uh, at pretty much every level. Uh, and so what what do we even say about this team this year? Is this just, just another rebuilding year? De'Aaron Fox should be really fun to watch. Is that what we're looking at so at this point? I, I'm on the other end. So I, I like the Kings better than like anyone else in this, uh, in this, in this tier. tier, I think. Interesting. Like, um, I think like they're... Like they're the bizarro, uh, like they're bizarro Sixers. Like they like show the futility of being Sam Hinkie because you can do everything wrong like the Kings and still end up with a roster that's like comparable. Roughly, yeah, Hinkie assembled level quality. And so the thing is, like they've they've also like in the last uh, maybe eighteen months, uh, kind of righted the ship a little bit. Where this offseason they added Zach Randolph and Vince Carter on de-escalating contracts so that they can have veteran guys, you know, teaching the young guys stuff while also, you know, not clogging the cap for a number of years. Uh, like, they're doing interesting things. They have George Hill, who's going to be a big help there, where they, like, have an actual point guard to, you know, both teach De'Aaron Fox how to, you know, play point guard, but also, you know, run point guard for the team. And, like, Buddy Heald. Buddy like, Heald, better than I thought he would be coming out of college. He, he played much better on the Kings uh, when he came over from uh, from the Pelicans. But, but yeah, like, he also, like, doesn't have to, you know, try to pretend to play point guard either. And so I think, like, this is going to be a bad team. <laughs> But but one that's uh, that's much more interesting um, 
now and in the future than like you probably might think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that they're interesting. I maybe because of some of the guys that they grabbed in free agency that I thought would be better suited on a contender, and I'm like, oh, Sacramento got them. I like that player. And then they go out and get George Hill. I'm like, oh, I like that player. Vince Carter has still shown himself to be somewhat useful to these contending teams. So they got three or four of these guys on this roster, and they have guys that don't hurt you, maybe don't help you a ton like Garrett Temple. It's a decent team. It's a team that should win 30, 32 games, something like that. I I think they could do that. It would be respectable. It's not going to get them anywhere necessarily. But it's not a bad team, and frankly, they've got enough young guys, especially Fox, that I'd like to watch play. And so it's not a bad team. All right, cool. So that does it for the Western Conference. We've talked about every team in the West, which is uh, by far the stronger conference uh, in the NBA. As we wrote about Chris, uh, the exodus of talent between the two really makes the West just crazy stacked uh, going into the 2018 season. So we'll be back to talk about the Eastern Conference next week. That'll do it for our first ever show. Uh, Thanks to Chris Herring in Chicago, Illinois, for joining the show. Thank you for having me, guys. See you next week. (laughs) And thanks to Kyle. We're going to be here every week, man. You don't have to thank... Uh, Fine. Our podcast producers, uh, who may or may not have written the script, are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast GM is Chad Matlin. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think especially since uh, this is our first ever episode. Uh, And whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're also there. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Uh, Just look in the Listen tab of the ESPN app as well. We'll be there. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. I'm Neil Payne. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next time.